0: occupy an odd place in popular culture we have talk like a pirate day not so long ago they were often touted as the perpetual enemies of ninjas for some reason and nine times out of ten the word conjures images of johnny depp doing his best impression of keith richards which when you think about it at all makes very little sense pirates seem more or less entirely fictional and for being the perpetrators of some terrible crimes are usually regarded quite highly today on hl101 we're going to do our best to try and not only dispel some myths about pirates, but also give them some context in terms of how they fit into history. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinson. Hello. How's it going?
1: Good. How are you?
0: Not too bad. I'm really happy to have you back on. Thanks. And today we're going to talk about piracy. Yay. Um, specifically, Caribbean piracy, because pretty much as long as people have been Sailing on boats. There's been other people who have been trying to take boats away from the other people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and steal the things that are on those boats, which is pretty much all you need to know for a definition of piracy. End
1: of podcast.
0: Yeah. That's 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 <laughs> really shortest the... episode ever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's that's pretty much the definition of piracy that we're that we're working with. Is is basically any crime committed at sea either in terms of violent crime or in terms of attempts to steal a vessel or its contents it it falls under the umbrella of piracy Mm -hmm. and yeah we're going to focus on caribbean piracy partially because there's too much other like really good material from other parts of the world and other uh, periods of time to focus on that we would just be here just forever talking about piracy if we (laughs) covered all of it and partially because i think that this sort of period of a couple well really only a a couple hundred years in the in the caribbean is sort of so ingrained in our popular culture that when people think pirate they think you know the the peg leg and the hook and the
1: the parrot on the shoulder yeah
0: yeah yeah the tricorn hat all of that stuff when in reality most of those tropes kind of come from you know Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, Treasure Island specifically, but mm-hmm. other kind of fictional works about about pirates from this uh, from this era. But really, you know that's that's the type of pirate that those tropes are based on. And so, no Caribbean pirates didn't bury their treasure and you know make a treasure map with X marking the spot. <laughs> that didn't actually happen ever. That's the that's the type of pirate that we're going to talk about today. But yeah, some of the ones that we're giving up are are pretty cool. There's um. Over over three thousand years ago, there were the uh, the sea people who attacked the uh, Egyptians mm. uh, from 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 the sea. They would come in boats and, and raid along the coast of uh, of the the Mediterranean, and uh, they they were enough of a hassle, enough of a problem that there are writings on uh, on the walls of tombs and hieroglyphics about going to war with the sea sea people. Oh, cool. despite Not really knowing where they came from. Mm-hmm. Mediterranean piracy has been a thing, basically nonstop since we've had ships on the mediterranean all the way from you know romans dealing with uh with pirates including julius caesar being kidnapped by pirates actually when he was uh uh when he was fairly young and held for ransom oh really yeah it's 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 actually a pretty good story um he he was kidnapped and then he asked his captors what what ransom they were asking for his return and um they told him and he said oh no no no, no. you should you should make that like five times bigger i'm worth way (laughs) more money than that (laughs) And they kind of laughed, and so they did up it. I mean, he was from a wealthy family. True, true. He, he true. knew that it would be, he knew that it would be paid. But he he started kind of befriending these pirates, and, and they would play, um, uh, they would play dice together, and really you know, hang up, hang out at night. And um, so, was this
1: kind of like a reverse Stockholm syndrome thing?
0: Well, no, because he would sit there and he would tell them every single night. You know, when I uh, when I get ransom, I'm uh, going to come back here with a fleet, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> okay. And then he did get ransomed and then he did go back and he crucified every single one of the pirates that had kidnapped him. So, A man of his word. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that really there was any, like, actual friendship stuff going on there. I feel like maybe he was more toying with them than anything. Yeah. But yeah, that the the Barbary coast, so the north coast of Africa has been home to piracy for, for thousands of years. And I mean, mm-hmm. um, there were Barbary pirates that were sponsored by the Ottoman Empire and there was the... Uh, uh, the Maltese pirates out, out out of the island of Malta that were actually former uh, Templar knights. but after the the dissolution of their order, they uh, they raided cargo vessels on the the Mediterranean. Hmm. there was um the Chinese piracy is its own whole different thing. there was oh, actually cool. yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, the probably the most famous uh, and possibly most successful uh, Chinese pirate was actually this uh, this woman uh, the, like a pirate queen they called her, and she what? was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and she was extremely well known. She was incredibly vicious. Uh, but, she, but she held her own and and, and uh, made a lot of money doing it. Oh,
1: man. But I've got no, to look up Chinese lady pirate in my free time.
0: I will add her name to the notes. I can't remember it off the top of my head. But um, yeah, we're going to, we're going to ignore all of those and focus on the Caribbean today. Fair enough. And we can't really start talking about the Caribbean pirate phenomenon until we talk about... Really, European contact with the New World because that's where all of this stuff starts out. That's where ships crossing the Atlantic back and forth between Europe and the Caribbean start. Right, and it kind of goes like real bad for a bunch of people right off the bat, (laughs) mostly because the first one. I I mean, yeah, I I know, I know he's not the actual first one. There were the there were the Vikings settling in (laughs) Newfoundland and all of that, but you know, traditionally considered the first person to discover the New World. Is uh, is Christopher Columbus, and man, I don't like that guy.
1: Good old Christopher Columbus.
0: I've said this on the show a number of times. I super don't like Christopher Columbus. He was the worst. Mm-hmm. He thought that the world was a lot smaller than it actually was by like a full five hours, <laughs> and so that means that well, let's 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 back up. We're we're getting ahead of ourselves in this story. He discovers he discovers America, and he and, and the reason that he discovers America is that. About 40 years before, the Ottoman Turks had uh, overthrown the last remnants of the Byzantine Empire and cut off all trade mm-hmm. across the Silk Road, which was traditionally a very important trade route for Europe. So everyone was trying to find a way to get that back. It had been a while. The economy wasn't doing so great. And yeah. There were really two ways that you could do this. There was the way that the Portuguese were going about it, which was uh, sailing along the coast of Africa. And they were kind of slowly building outposts there for you know refueling right. or uh, taking on provisions not fueling you don't need fuel for sales but uh, in any <laughs> case taking on provisions and food and mainly clean water uh, for these voyages uh, around the entirety of africa into the indian ocean getting to the east uh, that way and then there was the way that columbus wanted to do it which was sailing all the way around the world the other direction right now some people seem to think that he discovered that the world was round or was the only one that thought that the world was round. Not true. We've known that since Greek times. <laughs> Possibly even before. It's, it's super old knowledge. It's not a it's problem. It's old news. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the thing, the, the revolutionary thing that Christopher Columbus was proposing trying to get to China was that he thought that the world was five hours smaller than it actually is. Mm-hmm. So if you, take the, if you take the world and divide it up, into 24 hours, which is the 24 hours of the day, it takes one hour for the Earth to rotate through each hour of this division. Right? Mm-hmm. He thought that the world was only 19 hours, uh, 19 of our hours big. Right. He thought it was much smaller than everyone had measured. Which, by the way, this is not a hard thing <laughs> for people to measure. He was the only one that thought this. Oh. And, but but he was convinced of it. He was like, no, this is true. That means that the East is a lot closer than we thought. And that means that I can sail there, given the, given current boat technology, basically. And Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain basically went, Eh, if we lose three ships in the middle of the ocean, so be it. Go ahead. <laughs> and if he hadn't run into the Americas, he would have died somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. Because he yeah. counted wrong. Yeah. He was kind of an idiot. <laughs> so then he discovers the Americas. He thinks this is the the east side of asia
1: mm-hmm. thought this
0: until his dying day <laughs> and the first thing that he gets he does when he gets there is he meets some very very friendly natives and he's like wow these guys are pushovers he writes down in his journal i bet that these people make really good slaves for those mean guys on the mainland that have been coming to battle with them maybe i'll try making slaves of them too and As he takes do. a bunch of them prisoner and takes them back to spain with them good <laughs> a great first impression <laughs> Like, that's really how you want to open up oh, yeah. a relationship that has been closed for 13,000 years, for thanks sure. to the Bering Strait. Oh, <laughs> uh, man, I don't like Christopher Columbus at all. I, ha- I have to stop harping on him, um, or we're never going to get anywhere. One year after he gets back in 1493, Portugal and Spain sit down at the negotiation table, and they go, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to draw a line down the middle of the Atlantic, and everything on the east side of that line that isn't Europe is the domain of Portugal. Everything mm-hmm. to the west of that line is Spain's. And both sides thought that they got a pretty good deal out of this because the Spanish know that they found a new, like, an entire new continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they figure that's got to be good for something. Probably. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> and then the Portuguese are like, well, we're already more or less done developing this trade route to the east. It it's, it's, doesn't necessarily have the same potential for a payoff that the right. new world does, but it's a sure thing and we're making money now. I'm happy with this. So everyone's happy. The line, by the way, actually goes through South America, like just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the 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 eastern side of, of South America is actually in, quote unquote, Portuguese territory. Right. Um, which is actually why uh, Brazil speaks Portuguese, Portuguese yeah. and the rest of Latin America speaks Spanish. Oh, it's, a, okay. it's an outgrowth of this. Hmm. Yeah. So those two took this very seriously. So seriously, in fact, they went to the Pope and had a papal bull uh, issued Confirming this treaty is true. Yeah, they were they were pretty into this whole thing.
1: Doesn't get more official than that.
0: Not in not not in 1493. It does not. And so it was looking like they had things pretty well locked down, uh, except that this little thing called the the Reformation happened in 1519. Ooh. Like, like not even 30 years later. and All of a sudden, there were a whole bunch of countries that no longer cared what the Pope said. Yeah, at all. Because in this ensuing time, you know, in the last 20, 30 years. The Spanish had landed on the mainland. They had encountered a number of indigenous civilizations and in doing so basically wiped out the entire population of North and South America. Yeah. uh, Just through exposure to smallpox and measles and other diseases that uh, Native Americans had never been exposed to. Some people put the number of of killed at as high as 90% of the population. Oh, wow. So one in 10 people survived contact. And the thing is that it wasn't even just direct contact because the, the, the diseases that were killing them, uh, especially smallpox Mm -hmm. is incredibly infectious. Yeah. And what's more, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I did a whole episode on smallpox, but what's special about smallpox is that it really hits a sweet spot about how much you can spread it before you yourself die of it. Yeah. It spreads a good point. Yeah. It spreads very quickly. Well, with, with uh, epidemics, if you die from it too fast, it burns out right away. Yeah. And if you die from it too slow, um, people might realize what's going on and keep people contained. Yeah. So you want people to unknowingly spread them around or yeah. the disease wants to be unknowingly spread around <laughs> while you're still healthy to as many people as possible. And I say that like diseases have agency, which of course they don't. But it, it's really sobering to think about how many people died before Europeans even had a sense of just how well-developed and how populated the Americas were before they got there.
1: It's hard to wrap your head around. It really is. That number, like... Yeah. Yeah.
0: But what they're left with is this impression that the Americas were essentially empty. Yeah. Which they weren't until they got <laughs> there and emptied them out. Yeah. Which is horrible. That's terrible. But anyways, they had landed on the mainland uh, and they had discovered major deposits of silver in Mexico and Bolivia. Okay. And promptly set about mining it and shipping that all back to Spain. Yeah. Because Spain has traditionally been a very wealthy country. It's also just like never stopped fighting, pretty much ever. It spent several hundred years trying to push the, the Moors back out of, out of Spain. These were North African Muslims who had, uh, who had crossed the, the strait into, into Spain. And they, they had what was known as the Reconquista, the Reconquest of Spain trying to push them all out of the, the country. And that's sort of where some of the sense of like religious fervor comes in when you think about medieval Spain. Oh, okay. Um, the whole Spanish Inquisition comes out of that, trying to hunt down the last of the Moors. I and see. Once they're done, you know, kind of flushing out Moors, then they turn their their attention to, uh, to Jews in the area and it kind of just gets out of hand from there. Mm-hmm. But all of this, con- uh, uh, all of this conflict uh, is really expensive or is not cheap. You need to pay for it somehow. And mm. good news, they had just found a basically silver. unlimited yeah. supply of silver. <laughs> so they were shipping as much of it across as possible. Thing is, if you have loose morals and a ship with a couple of guns, that's some prime picking.
1: Yeah, I would say so.
0: You want one of those ships because it's loaded with silver. That's, that's going to work. <laughs> That'll do, ya. So, yeah, absolutely. Raiders were going after these ships constantly as soon as they first started coming across. And this sort of results in this the cycle of of innovation and progress in terms of the the quality of the ships that were actually going back and forth across the atlantic because Mm -hmm. most of the shipbuilding in europe up until this time has been very mediterranean centric i mean the mediterranean we think of it as kind of like one little sea kind of in the the context of the the larger world right Um, there's a reason it's called mediterranean right latin it's it's medi the middle of the
2: earth yeah yeah,
0: yeah. a european person would look at a map of the Mediterranean, they would see a sea in the middle, and then a bunch of stuff stuck on the outside, right? Like it's it's the it's the centerpiece of it. It's the, right. it's the focus of it, and that's because a lot of the the trade that was happening was happening across the Mediterranean. Even stuff that was coming from the Silk Road before that was cut off, spent part of the time of its journey from the Levant, either from from Turkey or from uh, the Holy Land, on a boat from there to uh, Italy, mm-hmm. and. Those, those were the ships that Europeans were used to building. Thing is, the Mediterranean is a very calm sea. So you can get away with relatively small boats with flat-bottomed designs, which helps you get through kind of more shallow waters, but mm-hmm. isn't as stable necessarily. They, were, they tried taking those out on the Atlantic, which has... Like, the North Atlantic is an incredibly choppy uh, ocean. Right. And the waves were too big. It would, it would topple ships over. They had to learn how to build... You know, pointed bottom ships like the the, the traditional like sailing ship mm-hmm. uh, hull shape that you think of that's far more stable in in higher waves
1: so would you say then that there's like a correlation between the sophistication and technology behind shipbuilding and the advent of piracy
0: yes because what ends up happening is that you don't want a whole bunch of really unstable boats carrying all of your silver across yeah you want bigger more stable ships which leads to larger, Mm cargoes which leads to more enticing cargoes which leads to more pirates looking to get a piece yeah what's more that it's it's not like the ship technology that was that was being developed here is top secret somehow everyone is learning how to make better ships Mm -hmm. and so that means that it's not just the official spanish fleet that's getting these much better ships it's also the pirates who are attacking those ships right (laughs) so really everyone's or everyone's getting improved uh, naval technology at this point in time okay. it's developing quite rapidly basically as soon as the reformation happens the french who hate the spanish by the way really <laughs> hate the spanish start commissioning privateers to attack these spanish ships privateer is kind of an interesting designation because basically what that means is that you're taking someone who is a pirate issuing them what's known as a letter of mark which is basically just a it's, it's a permission slip from a government <laughs> to be a pirate. Okay. Because really what happens after that is that a privateer takes that letter of mark as, a, as permission to do exactly what any of these other non-sanctioned pirates are doing, which is going, trying to capture ships, take their cargo, capture the sh- like, take the ships themselves sometimes, and deny the enemy nation all of that value, both in the ship and the cargo. Right. Um, and what a privateer could do in return is sell all of the cargo and the ship itself at auction. And the privateer would get a cut of this and the government issuing the letter of Mark would get a cut of this. And it was done this way in part to kind of cut down on, like to give uh, the government some plausible deniability Mm -hmm. because they are technically sanctioning piracy. (laughs) But they're doing it in a way that if they absolutely had to, they could deny that they ever gave any specific orders to attack that ship or even necessarily said that this person was somehow diplomatically protected. They're not actually official agents of that government. Yeah. And the official government of these, these countries has no, you know, technically has no knowledge of what's going on, even though they absolutely did. So it, it gives them a way of, of making sure what they want to happen is happening, but not being on the hook for it. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this earlier, and, and one of the things because these 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 um, nations aren't building their own navies. Navies are expensive uh, in a number of ways. Like building the ships are really expensive, mm-hmm. but you also have to build the, or you you also have to train the sailors, and you have to pay the sailors no matter whether or not they're at sea or or uh, involved in naval action, right. any of that. Hiring privateers is actually really cost effective because you don't have to buy the boat you just find someone who has a boat or a ship already i keep saying boat the difference between a boat and a ship is that a ship is is a a floating vessel that's large enough to hold another boat Um, that's the only difference but we should really be calling them ships (laughs) not boats uh that makes it sound like they're rowing around yeah (laughs) in a paddle boat of some sort
1: like in a kayak with like bags of silver
0: yeah basically um I was thinking about this earlier today. and and it um, it's a lot like what companies like Uber are doing now. Oh, okay., um, in that they're offloading all of the upfront costs and all of the risk onto their employees. Oh, yeah, without actually having to take the the consistent expense of building a fleet of cabs or in this case, ships of paying the the cab drivers or sailors a consistent rate. Basically, if you are an Uber driver, you get a message saying that you've got a fare. You go and pick them up. You take them where they need to go and you get some of the fee and the company Uber gets some of the fee Yeah, and you move on your way. That's so a really good
1: analogy, actually. It's
0: very, very similar in operation. Yeah. Um, which makes a lot of sense when something is very new and immature and, and you want to avoid those upfront costs and risks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, ultimately you run into other problems like... Uh, how dependable the you know the, the people uh, who are working for you um, actually are because a lot of these privateers would kind of get to a point where they'd go, well, I could take this into auction and give half the proceeds to the King of France and I get to keep some. Or I know a guy down on the Barbary Coast <laughs> and I can just sell the whole thing. Yeah. So even though these privateers were sanctioned, number one, that sanction was only recognized by the country issuing it. Not by the country that was being pillaged by them, right? And number two, a lot of these people still engaged in illegal activities despite their letter of marque. Okay. So it gets really fuzzy when it comes to privateers, <laughs> but they're going to keep coming back up. So it's uh, it's important to talk about. Cool. By about 1560, the English and actually the Dutch have started in on a similar harassment uh, program against the the Spanish. the The French have already been at it since the 1520s, but they they really get in on the action. The Dutch, because The Habsburgs, who are in control in in Spain, believe that they have a claim on the Netherlands. Okay. Um, The Dutch obviously disagree. Yeah. Um, And it doesn't help that the Netherlands is one of the foremost centers of Protestant thought at this point in time. Mm. And the Habsburgs are decidedly Catholic. Yeah. Very, very, very Catholic. You know, Inquisition and whatnot. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. the English have gone through their own, it's not exactly a reformation, but the creation of the Anglican church, which in the 16th century is, is seen as enough to to put you in the Protestant camp mm-hmm. um, as close as it was to Catholicism at the beginning. And Elizabeth just really didn't like the Spanish. <laughs> and so both, both the English and the Dutch have started uh, harassing uh, Spanish ships, which leads to the Spanish creating what's known as the Spanish treasure fleet. So instead of sending a whole bunch of little tiny boats Uh, across at various times whenever they're ready to go they would gather them all together in one giant uh, convoy and send them off uh, across the Atlantic once a year Hmm. so the theory behind convoy is that because they're all grouped together it's like it's really hard to find like ships in the middle of the Atlantic yeah and so what you could do is send ships over a whole bunch of different times and hope that you get lucky every time or you can put all of your eggs in one basket And instead of lots of little places where you could be found out, you have one tiny place where you could be found out. Yeah. Which is very unlikely.
1: Strategically, that makes more sense.
0: Yeah, which is very unlikely to be found. What's more is that you can include in your convoy ships that aren't carrying any cargo at all, but rather are specialized entirely uh, towards fighting other ships. Okay. So you have protection for the entire convoy if pirates show up.
1: So would pirates attack these convoys then or were they generally outnumbered?
0: Uh, There were a couple of instances of people trying to attack the Spanish treasure fleet, but it wouldn't be for quite some time after this this beginning stage. Mainly what would happen is as much as ships have improved, they haven't improved that much. Mm -hmm. And so you would often get like stragglers here and there. Yeah. And so kind of like.
1: Or like what happens if they attack the wrong ship, like the ship that doesn't actually have any of the goods and they're just like. Just
2: kidding. Well,
0: <laughs> I mean, in that case, they'd probably be sunk. Yeah. Um, but I, because, because all of the ships on this, on this convoy are going to be either carrying cargo of some sort, or they're going to be purely military. Yeah. Um, I mean, if they find a ship that isn't a uh, part of the treasure fleet, they're probably going to you know plunder it anyways. Yeah. So they're, they might be mad that they missed some of the silver, but <sighs> it's not going to affect the pirates day. It's just going to make it a real bad day for some other poor merchant. Yeah. Um, No, they would wait and see if they could get, or they they would wait and see if uh, a ship would fall far enough away from the convoy that the the ships protecting it were too far away. And they would pillage those. I see. Um, Which wasn't nearly as big a payday as if you could take the entire fleet, obviously. Yeah, of course. It's a lot less risk. A lot (laughs) less risk. And I mean, by this time, you start getting other things that are making them money. It's not just the raw silver. They've started colonizing various islands in the Caribbean, the Spanish, that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the French have also started looking at some, you know, starting some some colonies up in uh, North America. This is where New France is going to be right. starting, right? There's a verbal agreement between Fra- France and Spain that there's a divide at the Tropic of Cancer, that basically anything above that or north of that is is French territory and Spanish will stay away. Mm-hmm. But that gives... Spain, all of Mexico, all of the Caribbean, all of South America. So they're pretty happy with this in general. Yeah. But their territory is still shrinking. Yeah. The main exports besides silver at this point in time is that all of these colonies have started growing mainly two things. Tobacco, which is a New World crop, but they love it in Europe Mm -hmm. and it's very, very expensive there so they can make a lot of money. Tobacco grows relatively easily, but... It's such a novelty that, yeah. you know, they can sell for a lot. Uh, and then sugar. Sugar cane is a weird thing. Like sugar, you don't necessarily think of as being like the most prized commodity. Mm-hmm. And yet at this point in time, refined sugar, number one, takes a lot of work. Number two, doesn't grow in Europe at all. Oh, okay. So it's a luxury good. It takes like a tropical uh, climate right, to grow. Right, yeah. It needs to be really, really warm. And number three, processing sugar from sugarcane mm-hmm. is really difficult and really dangerous work. There's a lot of chopping things up and, and, and grinding things up and boiling things off. And there are a lot of places in this process that you can be...
1: You can lose a finger. Horribly or be <laughs>
0: injured. Or uh, sugar burns were a thing because you would get like molten liquid sugar. Mm-hmm. And if you got it on you, it's so sticky Ooh. That it just you, you can't get it off easily. Yeah, right? like you get splashed with boiling water and you can wipe it off. You get yeah, splashed with with liquid sugar, and it pretty much just like burns in place where where you get hit. Ugh. And you know, someone someone gets an arm into the vat. That whole arm is going to be just horribly like scalded. Horribly yeah, so it's incredibly dangerous work, and the Spaniards don't want to do it. So. What they would normally do in this situation is enslave the local populace, but unfortunately they have no local populace left. Yeah. And this is where the Atlantic slave trade begins. Oh. Because the thinking here is that people from a similar climate to where they're growing the sugar would be best suited for working in that climate. And what's more, the Portuguese have already opened the door to the Atlantic slave trade by establishing all of those trading posts along Africa. They have some relationships with the local people there who are willing to slave, uh, sell them slaves.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So now you've got slaves crossing the Atlantic, which are also open to piracy. <laughs> uh, you have sugar going across. You have tobacco going across. Uh, tropical fruits are a really big thing. Quite, quite expensive uh, in Europe. And then you have the, the, the treasure fleet going across uh, once a year. Mm-hmm. There's tons of stuff for people to take in the, in the Caribbean. Yeah, that's
1: a lot of traffic.
0: It's a very, very wealthy place. The thing to remember, though, about colonies is that colonies are never set up with the intention of one day letting them spread their wings and become independent yeah. nations. That's not why you set up a colony. You set up a colony to exploit it as much as possible for your own economic gain. Yeah. And that's exactly what they were doing here was trying to make as much money off of it as possible. So you had colonies at a lot of places that we would know today, Panama City, uh, San Juan, Havana, like a lot of the, the capital cities of, uh, of the Caribbean and, mm-hmm. uh, and Central America were being set up as these plantation cities to grow these cash crops. Yeah. And they were growing quickly, but it was growing on the backs of these, uh, these plantation systems. Britain finally broke into the Caribbean in 1625 with a colony at uh, Barbados, there was also uh, French presence that entered that area uh, in the 1620s when French Protestants that had been expelled from the uh, from the country colonized the island of Tortuga, which is oh, yeah. known as a as a as a pirate stronghold. Yeah, and, and and Tortuga is right off the coast of Hispaniola, which is the the island that uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic are part of. Okay, and Hispaniola was entirely Spanish. In fact, it was one of the islands that Columbus visited on his very first voyage. But these these Huguenots, the, the French Protestants on the island of Tortuga were kind of the foothold that would eventually gain uh, France, the, the the colony of, uh, of Haiti and eventually uh, the independent nation of Haiti. Right. But that's where that French presence in that area comes from. Okay. Various islands throughout the, the Caribbean slowly become colonized over the, the early 1600s. And again, every single one of them is doing nothing but shipping pure crash, cash crops back to Europe. And it is very fat pickings for anyone who's willing to take on a little bit of risk and try and take one of these ships for their own. So yeah. Along with this wealth, piracy swells because, honestly, there's not a lot, of, a lot in the way of enforceable um, authority in that area.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Who's going to catch you? <laughs> what are they going to do about it? Yeah. The Atlantic is a very big place, and the Spanish very quickly learn that while the, that papal bull from – the late 15th century uh, may look real good on paper, actually putting it into practice is a lot harder than it seems. Yeah. And they realize that their control is very quickly slipping away. We should bounce back to Europe because a lot of the stuff that's going on in Europe is going to inform what's going to come next in the Caribbean. Okay. 16th century, it was real rough for Europe. I mean, a lot of centuries are real rough for Europe, to be (laughs) real. But the whole Reformation thing really turned things on its head. Yeah, There were a lot of wars that were fought in the name of religion that were kind of conceits to cover up other conflicts that had been going on for a really long time and the players involved just needed a reason.
1: I see, yeah.
0: Uh, But other times these wars were actually about the religions that were involved and all that was really required of me to declare war on you was that we were of a different faith and that was pretty much enough mm-hmm. in this century. It was it was kind of crazy. Yeah. There's a couple that I want to sort of focus on, though. The first one is the Anglo-Spanish War. It goes from 1585 to 1604. And this is under Queen Elizabeth I. It's kind of the height of, of that sh- sort of Shakespearean England. Right. And this war is religious in nature because, you know, you do have the Anglican Church in, in England, obviously, and the, the, the Catholic Church in, in Spain. But it's also about colonial rights because, I mean, in, in 1585... Britain still hasn't broken into the Caribbean as much as they'd like to. Remember, they won't do that till 1625 with Barbados. Part of the fight here is trying to sort of establish some sort of dominance in the naval field that would allow Britain to sort of claim some right to be in the Caribbean. The biggest things to come out of this this whole conflict, and I mean, as, as long as it's kind of listed in those those years that I gave, it's more like a bunch of tiny cl- conflicts that are going on right. within it with a number of cool periods around it. This is where Sir Francis Drake comes in. Sir Francis Drake is one of the more well-known uh, Elizabethan figures. He was not necessarily like well-off. He wasn't noble-born or anything like that, but he was elevated through his... Um, his accomplishments at sea. He was actually mm. the first captain to circumnavigate the globe and like return with his own uh, right. expedition. Because Magellan's, Magellan's fleet had already done it, but been, Magellan had yeah. actually died in the Philippines. He didn't uh, come back with the fleet.
1: So was being a captain then sort of like a high social status position or?
0: Um, best answer there is it depends. I mean, a, a, a being a captain because there wasn't quite a Royal Navy yet the way that we think of it now, mm-hmm. a lot of ships' captains are private individuals. So they own their own ship and they'll they'll use it for mercantile reasons, right? Okay. And so yeah, you had to be a little bit better off to afford to buy that to ship, buy a in, ship the, yeah. in in the first place. But there were plenty of people who worked their way up. I mean, if, if you were going into a life at sea, you were starting at twelve, ten as uh you know, as a as a basically bottom of the heap sailor yeah. on, a, on a ship you're taken on as an apprentice and you would work your way up from there. Mm-hmm. Um, Drake was able to prove himself to be a fantastic sailor by circumnavigating the globe that won him fame and, and, and renown. But what really kind of ingratiated him to Queen Elizabeth was that she made him a privateer in this Anglo-Spanish war. Because while there were a number of periods where she didn't have active fighting going on between Spain and England, she wanted to keep the pressure on. Yeah. And the best way to do that is to take somebody, give them that letter of mark, that, that approval to be a a, uh, yeah. a a privateer and say, you know, go mess with them as much as possible. Basically. <laughs> um, but what's really interesting about Drake and, and what really kind of shows the Caribbean coming into its own is that rather than just spending all of his time off the coast of Spain, he sailed to the Caribbean. And he began attacking these colonies that are in the Caribbean, crippling their ability to output, not just their, not just taking away their, their cargo or anything like that, mm-hmm. but really cutting off that flow of money right at the source. Okay. And, you know, that really opened up the, the Spanish eyes to um, how important those colonies were. And they actually, after this war, would start kind of fortifying a lot of these colonies at the, at the ports because they realized they just couldn't afford not to. They were mm-hmm. too valuable to them. They were making them too much money. This is also the war where the Spanish Armada comes into play. I think that's one of those things that people have kind of heard of, but not necessarily yeah. uh, know a whole lot about. Basically, the Spanish decided that they needed to end things. They sent out all the ships that they had, because Spain actually had like a like a national navy. And okay. while Britain had one, or England at this point, sorry, while England had one, it was very, very small. I mean, really, that the process of building the Royal Navy had begun with Elizabeth's father Henry VIII, uh, and wasn't really all that far along. Um, they were they were well outmatched. Thing is, a big storm came up just before they engaged with the English, and it sunk a number of ships. It made them uh, a number of Spanish ships, I should say. It made the Spanish basically incapable of engaging the English properly, while mm. it actually kind of helped things for the English in terms of yeah. being able to get into position to fire on the the Spanish. And the Spanish fleet actually had to retreat. And, in, and rather than being able to go back to Spain, they had to head north up around the British Isles and into the North Sea off of the coast of Scotland. Oh. Which is like we talked about how treacherous Yeah, the, the waters is. are there. Uh, the North Sea is so much worse than just the general Atlantic. It's really cold, really choppy, and a lot more ships were lost just to, again, the conditions there mm-hmm. than any real fighting. The storm that came up was called a Protestant wind by some at the time because it was believed that there was some sort of divine intervention involved. Right. Uh, Like God was on their side for this. (laughs) Exactly. There were actually like commemorative medals struck with uh, there's a there's a Bible verse about uh, God using his breath. And and it's uh, yeah, they got real behind that whole divine intervention (laughs) thing. But, you know, it it certainly worked out for them. And what it really did for the British was kind of hammer home the importance of having a Navy, because when you're when you're an island nation, yeah, you don't necessarily need a huge army No, if you've got a good enough navy. And if you can control the seas around your island, you're basically impervious. And that's... It's,
1: it's arguably a more practical way to defend yourself. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely it is. Yeah. And that would end up becoming the foundation of British power through the 18th and 19th centuries mm-hmm. um, is, is this, this uh, doctrine of having a very, very strong navy. It would work out very well for them. Meanwhile, the Dutch were still fighting against Spain, this whole conflict over whether or not the Habsburgs had a claim on the Netherlands. Yeah. And they were building up a massive fleet as, as well. They were actually quite well known as, as very, very capable uh, shipbuilders. Hmm. Um, a lot of people don't think of the Dutch as a major
2: uh, no. naval power.
0: But yeah, in the, uh, in the 16th and early 17th century, they were major players. Wow. I mean, don't, don't forget, New York was originally New Amsterdam. It was founded by, it was a Dutch colony originally. Oh, um, yeah. So they did play with fa- uh, with uh, with some colonies in the New World as well. But uh, at this point in time, they were busy fighting mainly the Spanish. And that kind of brings me to the second uh, conflict that I wanted to talk about, which is the Thirty Years' War, which literally lasted exactly 30 years. Yeah. 1618 to 1648. It's a very, very long conflict. And it's a culmination of religious tensions from the Reformation, but it's also... A culmination of a number of like political and, and dyna- dynastic tensions that were playing out in Europe at the time. Right. Specifically this one between the Bourbons in France and the, uh, the, the Habsburgs in Spain that we were talking about earlier. So I mean on one hand France was dealing internally with its religious issues by expelling the Protestants the, the Huguenots that we talked about going to Tortuga mm-hmm. but on the other hand immediately thereafter turning around and allying with the German states who are all Protestant. Okay. Even though France remained Catholic because it was more important to them to fight against the Habsburgs than it was to join a Catholic league. So there are a lot of choices that are happening there. It's not quite black and white. It was a strategic like
1: alliance
2: for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not quite black and white along like religious lines. There's a lot of political stuff going on there too. Mm -hmm. And throughout this conflict, most of the most of the nations that are involved in this are hiring on privateers like crazy because those are the ones that can actually fight at sea. They can't build navies fast enough to keep up with thirty years worth of fighting. And the uh, the Anglo-Spanish War had shown just how important a navy could be, especially for especially for Britain, but also any of the uh, any of the the Atlantic nations that yeah. were involved. I mean, Spain was starting to kind of collapse, partially because it couldn't keep supremacy at sea it was losing all of this revenue in the caribbean coming in which was affecting its ability to fight that war mm-hmm. thanks to piracy it's also issuing letters of mark but refusing to acknowledge the letters of mark that are being issued by any of these other countries <laughs> all of them are hanging each other's privateers as pirates and refusing to to uh to acknowledge these letters and it's a complete mess for any of any uh privateers involved yeah but it's a dangerous job now, the culmination of the Thirty Years' War is the, uh, the Peace of Westphalia, which I've, I've alluded to a number of times on this show, which basically is the, f- the, the framework of our modern diplomatic system. It's the first time that you sort of recognize sovereign autonomy and really mm-hmm. basic concepts like that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of our topic, what it really affects for us is that you have 30 years worth of young men who have been training to be sailors, most of them privateers. hmm and after 30 years you've got a number of fairly high ranking people here who have never known anything but the 30 years war. Oh
1: yeah. Like
0: it's a very long conflict. Yeah. There are like there are people our age who would have been born after the war started and that's all they know. Yeah. The thing about a letter of mark is that it's only good in wartime. Okay. Because it, it is supposed to have some legitimacy to it. It's supposed to be part of a conflict. It's supposed to be a way of a nation conscripting civilians into the fight without necessarily bringing them into a framework of an official navy right. because they don't have those frameworks in place yet. That means that all of a sudden there are all these people with a lot of sailing experience and a lot of fighting experience who no longer have a way of making a living. Except that in the Caribbean, there is a, uh, a concept known as no peace beyond the line, which is that any of the colonies that are to the west of this line where Spain holds everything and to the south of the the tropic where supposedly France is, is fine above it or to the north of it. Anything south of that tropic and west of that line is Spanish held territory. And anything that happens there while technically under the authority of Spain, Spain, Spain is proving completely unable to actually enforce any of that. And because of that, most of the colonies that are there and most of the sailors that are there don't recognize any of the treaties that take place in Europe.
1: Oh, okay.
0: They see those treaties as ending at the line, ah. meaning that they're always at war beyond the line, meaning that letters of marque are always good beyond the line,
2: meaning oh. that they can continue
0: to work in the, in the Caribbean. And finally, meaning that all of these very seasoned privateers have basically only one place to go, in order to work with what they know. And so they're all going to head to the Caribbean. I see. So we will leave them right there for the moment. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll follow up on, on where they've gotten to. All right. All right. We're back on HI101 here with Yumika Hushnuther. Hi. And we've been talking a lot about sort of the, the things that make piracy... Uh, possible or even likely at this point in time Mm -hmm. but not a whole lot about like what pirates themselves did or were or i mean this section of my notes is titled why be a pirate (laughs) which i think is worth talking about because as much as it's kind of all resting on this big framework of of major events happening in europe you got you got to kind of ask why somebody would or, or why so many people would turn to a uh, life of crime which is you know let's just call this what it is mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways being a pirate has been really romanticized by popular culture yeah um, I mean ever since you know the you know the book Treasure Island and sort of the prototypical pirate in in long John Silver there mm-hmm. uh, the movies that were made out of it which you know give us the the stereotypical a pirate accent. That's just the accent of the guy who played Long John Silver. <laughs> that was just his accent. It's not like anything about being a pirate gives you that accent.
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think of, to be honest, when I think of pirates is probably Pirates of the Caribbean.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Those movies were a lot of fun. And the thing is, though, that the, all of those tropes from that movie, all of these ideas of what being a pirate is like, really stem more from popular depictions like treasure island than they do necessarily the reality of what it'd be like to, yeah to be a pirate at this point in time right? i'd imagine so yeah. i mean uh the the treasure map with x marks the spot that is treasure island uh-huh. uh the 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 parrot treasure island the <laughs> uh you know the the peg leg that's that's you know treasure island I, you know there there are other places where we get some of our ideas you know the 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 hook for a hand with with captain hook from peter pan and and things like that but ultimately this idea of like the noble pirate who is like fighting for some sort of cause or who is is looking for a life of freedom or you know all of these things that kind of go along with it is is highly romanticized (laughs) when in reality what you really have is a bunch of like really criminals desperate yeah yeah criminals absolutely but desperate and like disenfranchised young men who really don't have any other options than to turn to this type of very dangerous and not always necessarily very lucrative crime. Gangsters of the sea. Kind of, yeah, it's true. <laughs> there's, there's, there are certain parallels to be drawn. I mean, we've already talked a bit about privateers and what it meant to be a privateer, you know, kind of being a legal pirate, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. You had to, though, if you were a privateer, if you wanted the spoils of a capture, you had to get everything to a friendly port to be auctioned off. So you could still lose your spoils before you got them there. Yeah, and it was all kind of liquidated to cash. Like you kind of had to do that. Yeah, there were certain provisions for keeping a ship, but they frowned upon that. The government issuing the letter of mark would rather have right of first refusal on any vessels that were captured than necessarily being okay with giving the privateer captains uh, the the choice to uh, to keep the vessel for themselves. Mm. A lot of times uh, at this point in time, smaller vessels are faster, which means that, you know, yes, they're less well armed, but it's a little bit easier to start off with a very small vessel and kind of like work your way up as a pirate and kind of trade up in vessels. Get a little bit better one, a little bit bigger one. There are a few more guns on there, a little bit more cargo room and and just kind of go up slowly because you don't want to be too big because then you're slow. You don't want to be too small because then you're outgunned. It's kind of a fine balancing act. Right. And each captain kind of had to find the, the best place for them. But the best way to do that is to be constantly trading ships, usually through capturing other peoples. Yeah. Um, that, that was the best way to find the best ship for you. There were also a lot of rules under, you know, privateer law about, you know, what you had to do with the, the crew of the, ca- the the ship that you captured and make sure that they get to port safe. There's a lot of very... You could almost call them gentlemen's rules when it comes to any naval conflict, but Mm -hmm. especially uh, any of this privateer business. Yeah. And I mean, that that continues up until the 19th century with the the height of the Royal Navy. There are certain rules about about what you have to do with um, uh, with enemy sailors and, and things like that. Right. A lot of these are being kind of hashed out through this this conflict with privateers. If you sink a vessel, you have to take on the survivors. You can't let them drown. Okay, that's that's a that's a, a criminal offense. Like you, you have to do your best to rescue everybody that you can, even though a minute before they were just firing cannons, cannons at you. Yeah. So there is this kind of veneer of legitimacy, or even of a code, and that idea of a pirate code is actually not. It, it's one of the few things that actually is is fairly well rooted in in reality. Hmm. Interestingly enough. Pirate crews were generally really egalitarian like they were very yeah I, I there were a lot of there were a lot of things about them that made them very attractive for uh, non-military people specifically that when you joined a pirate's crew the first thing that they would do before allowing you to join is that all of them would have articles they would have a, a list of of rules and codes of conduct that you had to follow and before you joined you had to either read them or have someone read them to you mm-hmm. and make a mark, like sign a contract saying that you understood the rules. Oh, cool. Which is pretty
1: reasonable. That's civilized. <laughs> it's,
0: it's fairly civilized. It's a little less, you know, ragtag than we kind of sometimes think about. But they wanted to be very clear about what people were getting into. So generally terms would be things like you have to stay on for X amount. And it's not necessarily a, a length of time, but usually an amount of plunder before mm-hmm. people could look at, at moving on. Okay. Um, but they want people who are dependable and are going to stay on for a while until the job is finished, not someone who the instant that they get to uh, Port Royal decide that they like it better there and they want to stay. Yeah. You had very clear punishments for certain infractions that were laid out beforehand. And to be honest, while they are fairly severe, in comparison to a lot of the other military punishments at this point in time, they are very fair. They're completely reasonable. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were caught deserting that was up to the discretion of your captain but either you would be hanged which is kind of in line with treason with any other organization yeah. or sometimes just marooned which just means left without any provisions on a deserted island which mm-hmm. is a terrible way to go but, yeah you know you would also get kind of similar punishments for uh stealing from fellow crewmates which is just really there to kind of keep the peace on the ship that makes a lot of sense yeah uh, sometimes there would be extra punishments for for thievery including like usually like disfiguring type stuff like they would like i, I saw one that would uh, both of your nostrils would be slit Oof. which sounds horrendous but it's almost as much to mark you as a thief yeah. as it is to to punish you yeah uh, that's that's something that's uh, meant to be very visible any any personal disputes could not be resolved at sea which makes sense you don't want anything interfering with the yeah. ship that is kind of Pretty much keeping everyone alive. So if anyone had any grievances, they would let the captain or the quartermaster know. The quartermaster is a, um, like the helmsman, like the, the person who actually mm-hmm. steers the ship, basically, yeah. and would usually be like second in command to the captain. You, you would you would make a list of grievances, and next time you stopped either at uh, at a port or you know in a in a harbor to or a, a bay to take on provisions, any personal disputes would be uh, resolved on land. So in in certain instances, you could duel, like you know, do the whole walk ten paces and turn, yeah. turn and shoot. But in a lot of cases, the way that they would resolve that would be a, a duel with cutlasses to first blood. So not to the de- to the death, but until one person drew blood, and whoever drew blood was considered the winner of the dispute, and that's it. It's resolved huh. now. Which, again, you know, yeah, we're talking about people sword fighting over stuff. But, but I see sure what you-, you
1: mean in terms of it being relatively tame. In the, you know, the context of that era. Well,
0: it keeps people alive. It does. You're not losing men out of this.
1: Yeah, like you're not losing your crew out of it.
0: And what's more important, I think, in my mind is that everyone understands where they stand in this entire organization. Oh, yeah. What the consequences of all of their actions are and what ways they have to resolve any issues that they have in in a fairly structured manner. Mm -hmm. That's really important stuff for keeping people happy. Yeah. Gets even more reasonable, though, as you go, because some of these ships' crews were probably the most democratic organizations that fall under the European cultural sphere at this point (laughs) in time, because a lot of them uh, operated as limited democracies, meaning that the entire crew had a say in certain matters.
1: That's kind of delightful.
0: Some of them even going as far as crews being able to vote no confidence against their captain and re-elect a different captain. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not every crew, obviously. No, yeah. You know, this isn't necessarily a a regular thing, but it is a thing that happened often enough that it was uh, notably a a pattern among pirates and not just a, you know, a one-off oddity.
1: I'm impressed with pirate values. (laughs) That's, see, that's the Like, I realize it's kind of a weird thing to say, but...
0: Yeah, no, 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 I understand completely. There are a lot of very (laughs) admirable things about what's going on here. I mean, prizes, when they're paid out, Generally, the difference in prize that the captain would get versus the average sailor was a lot, like the gap was a lot smaller than what you would see even in most professional navies. Mm. And even among pirates, it would often be smaller than privateers who, where, where you had a, a, the owner of a ship trying to uh, make money off of whatever was left after a government took its cut. Right. So true pirates tended to pay. I mean, I saw, there, there were certain examples where captains were only taking one or one and a half or two times more than even the the bottom rung sailors hmm. out of a out of a prize taken from a ship where privateer captains could be taking 10 times more yeah in a lot of cases I, I i mean you're talking about the the person owning the ship the person running the ship your leader barely taking any more of the treasure than what he's giving to everyone else so yeah. there were certain positions that got you know more than the average sailor. So the 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 quartermaster, the yeah. doctor, the captain, uh, depending on how it was organized, some of the Did officers... you say the doctor? Yeah.
1: So they would have doctors on their ship. Sometimes,
0: if huh. if they could, they would. I mean, a, a doctor is invaluable. I mean, that's a good
1: say. yeah. Of course, yeah. Um,
0: and they were quite highly prized. In fact, one of the most highly prized plunders that you could possibly find is medicine, mm-hmm. because that's that's another myth about pirates is that all that they're ever finding is giant, you know, treasure chests full of gold pieces. Yeah. And that they're going around burying all of these pieces of eight all over the place. That's not really true. Mainly what they were plundering were things to just kind of keep them going. I think, I think to some extent people forget how difficult it is to keep yourself supplied even on a sailing ship. Yeah. Because, you know, yes, you may have Uh, the wind to to propel you around but where are you going to get gunpowder where are you going to get rope anchors Uh, what are you going to do if a mast breaks food Mm -hmm. you can only eat so much cured meat because you start getting sick after a while and things like scurvy aren't necessarily super well understood at this point yet yeah just kind of starting to figure that end of things out a little bit and uh, scurvy is a very serious disease Fresh water? You can't drink salt water. It's super bad for you. So you have to carry casks of fresh water around with you. That's the kind of stuff that they were stealing. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I mean, if they got money out of it, great. But they would probably turn around and sell it for more practical supplies in most cases. Mm -hmm. So a little bit more in terms of like how impressive they kind of seem. They tried to kill as few people as possible when taking ships. And here's why. If you are a merchant vessel and you're sailing along and you see a pirate coming towards you. You have one of two impressions here. Either you have the impression that all pirates will slaughter every single last one of you. Mm -hmm. And in which case you're probably going to go down fighting for your own life because maybe you can drive them off or you can have an impression that really pirates are just showing up. They just want the stuff on your ship. They're going to drop you off safe at some port Just let them take the stuff and you'll be okay. (laughs) Yeah. And if they can give people that impression of pirates in general, then they have a lot less people fighting back against them and they are losing a lot less of their own men. And it's a lot easier to take other ships. So it's actually really to their benefit not to hurt anyone
2: if they can help it. That makes a lot of sense.
0: So they would try to use as little violence as possible. They would still straight up kill you, absolutely no hesitation. But... You know, they're trying to foster that reputation. Yeah. That being said, we are talking about criminals who murdered plenty of innocent people. The punishment for piracy was generally hanging and usually the body was uh, left on display outside the port. They would hang the body in uh, in an iron gibbet, which is like a cage. It's like a giant bird cage. Mm-hmm. Um Well, they, they had them in, in Pirates of the Car- Caribbean. Yeah. They would leave them there until the flesh rotted off the bone so it would just be skeletons mm-hmm. uh, as a warning to other pirates so yeah there's there's a couple of things that are actually fairly accurate in terms of like our our impressions of pirates especially yeah the, the the hangings the uh the idea of the the crew being a little bit more uh egalitarian that's that's absolutely true but in 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 general yeah it's a it's an interesting type of criminal behavior especially when A lot of it was nationally based, right? Mm -hmm. If you were an English pirate, you were probably looking for Spanish ships. Uh, If you were a French pirate, you were probably also looking for Spanish ships. If you were Spanish, you probably weren't a pirate in the uh, the Caribbean because you were technically the authority in the area. And, you know, those are official Spanish Navy ships. Yeah. But you didn't have, you know, English pirates plundering other English ships. Mm -hmm. There were rules that they followed in terms of flags that you could fly. That was a big deal you could technically legally uh, sail under a false flag, so another nation's flag. Interesting. Which could help you out. Yeah. But even if you were a privateer, and even if for some reason the Spanish were going to actually recognize that authority, it was considered one of the, one of the worst crimes that you could, you could commit if you didn't fly your true flag before the first shot was fired. Oh. So you had to declare yourself before the first shot. Okay. So you could try and slip through on false flags, but if you were going to start fighting, you had to put up your true colors. And later on, as as the, as the various colonies in the Caribbean started cracking down, uh, even flying false flags just for sailing around would become illegal eventually. You had to uh, demonstrate your allegiance. Hmm. Yeah. And if you're a full-blown... Uh, pirate with no letters of mark this isn't necessarily going to concern you too much but these rules do sort of restrict the the uh, privateers that are operating in these areas Mm -hmm. there were oddly enough a non-trivial number of female pirates a lot of crews wouldn't allow women on board some for superstitious reasons Mm -hmm. some because they just believed that having any relationships among the crew was a very bad idea yeah. Um. It could foster discontent, uh, jealousy, uh, things like that that were just really not helpful when you're stuck on a boat with a bunch of people for <laughs> months at a time, which is kind of understandable. Yeah. For there sure. are there are like dozens of instances. Sounds like a
1: reality TV show. Like,
0: oh, honestly, <laughs> I I feel I I I don't I don't feel like I would do too good at sea. I feel like that's a long time to be cooped up with yeah. the same people in a very small area. Oh yeah. With not much to do, very trapped. <laughs> Yeah, putting a relationship into that scenario is probably not... <laughs> not a good idea. Not super helpful. But anyway, yeah, there were dozens of instances that we know of, of women dressing up as men and going off and joining pirate crews. Cool. Which, in a lot of cases, it seems like was relatively well-tolerated, actually. Hmm. I mean, there are some instances of uh, of people finding out and leaving them at the next port, essentially, when they realized that it was a, a woman that they had on crew, but those are close quarters and you can only hide so much for so long. Yeah. Uh, generally they were found out and in a lot of, uh, in a lot of cases they were just accepted by the crew, which kind of makes me think that the, the superstition end of things is, is a little bit less, uh, important than the, uh, the practicalities of, uh, of relationships among the crew, probably yeah. in that case. I, I, we I think I want to leave it off for, for this time, but next time we're going to talk about actually two very famous, uh, female pirates. Awesome. But, uh, yeah, it, was, it, it it happened relatively often and that's not something that you're going to see in the Royal Navy and the like because yeah. they just did not tolerate such uh, such behavior. <laughs> I think that's probably a good picture of what it's like to be a Caribbean pr- pirate at this point in time in general. I mean, really it's just going around looking for other ships that, that your ship can take on. Mm-hmm. You're looking for stuff that you can sell. You're looking for boats that you can turn in for any bounty that you possibly can. There are records of... Pirates taking hundreds of ships. Wow. I saw there. There was one instance of a pirate taking over four hundred ships during his career. Wow! It's just that's what pirating is. I don't. I don't know. That's that's the thing about having that popular conception is that like what what does a pirate do? I don't know. Go around and have adventures, I guess. No, <laughs> like that's not really what they got up to most of the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Most of the time, it was essentially a combination of of theft. Uh, kidnapping and extortion so right on you know, yeah good times good times you could call that an adventure
1: um, I think I found a new calling to be a pirate doctor
0: oh no <laughs> I kind of I, I really do wonder about those pirate doctors because they would be very well paid but in terms of just like their you know the, the, their oaths and whatnot Kind of makes me wonder how that whole thing. <laughs> fits I can just see like, like my business
1: cards with like pictures of a parrot on it, be like <laughs> Doctor Yumiko Hutchinruther, uh-huh. Pirate Doctor. Excellent. Yeah, straight into the point.
0: One thing that I found unbelievably plausible for pirates is the eye patch. Mm. There are some suggestions that the reason you use the eye patch is that you have to go from below decks to above decks frequently. So what you do is you put, you, you pick one eye to be your eye for seeing in the dark, and you pick one for being out in the bright. And so when you go below decks, you switch the patch to the other eye, huh. and one of your eyes has been kept contracted, yeah. because it's been kept in the dark, and it makes it easier for you to see quickly under uh, uh, below decks, because the one that's been above decks is completely... Or sorry, I, I said contracted, it's dilated below decks, yeah, contracted yeah. above decks, so... The one that's been in the bright light t- takes a really long time to adjust to the darkness. Mm-hmm. So you just switch it back and forth so that you can see more quickly in each, uh, uh, in each environment. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how common that was necessarily, but that's one of the reasons that they have pirates depicted as wearing eye patches. It's not necessarily because they've lost an eye.
1: That's so cool.
0: Yeah, it's very practical. I'd like to talk about what we would call the beginning of the golden age of piracy. Cool. Yes. Remember all those guys who learned to sail during the Thirty Years' War?
1: I do remember all those guys.
0: That we talked about moving to the Caribbean because they had really nothing better to do. There's there's a reason that the Thirty Years' War ended in 1648 and the uh, beginning of the Golden Age of Piracy begins in 1650. <laughs> there was a lot of good work to be had in uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, a lot of pirates were already there, as we talked about capturing all of those those cash crops that were going back to Europe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it became very easy to find really good talent very quickly in the Caribbean. This was coupled with a major power play that uh, England made in the Caribbean, namely the capture of Jamaica from oh, okay. the Spanish. They captured the entire island. And Jamaica is massive. It's the yeah. largest uh, single island in the Caribbean. In 1655, they managed to take it. And they realized very quickly that they might have a really hard time holding on to it because the Spanish fleet was still formidable at this point in time. It was very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And technically, the British didn't really have a good mandate to be there. They had just performed you know, an act of war or what mm-hmm. would be an act of war if it wasn't behind, or beyond the line. The brand new governor of Jamaica decides that the city of Port Royal, which is kind of the the main uh, city at this point in Jamaica, Kingston was relatively small at this point in time. Mm -hmm. He decides that he's going to invite a group known at this point in time as the Brethren of the Coast. And he's basically going to tell them, listen, you are welcome in Port Royal anytime you want to come here. The Brethren of the Coast was a very, very loose association of pirates and privateers in the Caribbean. Basically, he said... I will buy any of the crops from you or any of the um, the, the shipments from you uh, that you want to sell to me. No questions asked. Don't even care where they came from. If you are a sailor and you want a letter of Mark, I will give you one. <laughs> In return, just, I need you to help me hold Jamaica. I need you to help me hold Port Royal. All right. And they said, sure. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yep. Because you have French sailors, the the Huguenots that are coming from Tortuga, are coming to Jamaica and getting English letters of Mark. <laughs> uh, the English and the French are actually relatively uh, friendly at this point in, in history, which is a bit of an oddity for them. Mm-hmm. But under the Stuart Crown, they're they're kind of buddy-buddy, which is fine. Aww. Yeah, it doesn't last long, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, you have English uh, sailors going to Tor- Tortuga now, and you have uh, the, the, the French governor there issuing French letters of Mark. So you have privateers that are sailing under both letters of Mark if they want them yeah. against the Spanish because both of them hate the Spanish so much yeah. that they're willing to essentially deputize people from the other country just in order to help out with this effort. Yeah. Now this play by the governor of Jamaica was, I Hilarious. guess risky would be a reasonable <laughs> word for it because he issued this invitation by 16 er, in 1657 by 1660, Port Royal was being called the Sodom of the New World because <laughs> all of the pirates were going there. They were selling all of their stuff and immediately spending that money in that port on whatever they liked. Mm-hmm. And the governor had already told them that they basically had free license to do whatever they wanted. Yeah. And it turns out what they wanted to do was uh, gamble and drink and visit brothels. All right. So Port Royal uh, <laughs> went to the dogs real fast, really, real fast. And there was nothing he could do about it. So, yeah, it gave, it gave Jamaica to the British. Absolutely. Uh-huh. There's no doubt about that. They wouldn't have been able to hold Jamaica if he hadn't done that. But it essentially destroyed any uh, legitimacy that city ever held. Yeah. Sodom gets all the lip service in terms of sinfulness. I don't think there's a Gomorrah of the New World. Always just gets a free pass. I don't get it. Doesn't seem fair. <laughs> Anyways, Tortuga kind of has a similar reputation at this point in time, but that's really just because of the sort of outcast nature of the Huguenots. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The French basically disowned them during the expulsion in the 1620s. And because of that, Tortuga had always been not necessarily completely within the framework of the French colonial system and had been quite friendly to pirates, which means that it wasn't just French that were there, but also there were some, uh, native sailors. There were some, uh, sailors of African descent. So there were, there were black pirates there. Mm-hmm. And in general, it seems that within pirate culture, again, doing my part to romanticize pirate life, uh, they were fairly colorblind. It had a lot more to do with your skill at sea than it did, uh, anything to do with, uh, with the color of your skin.
1: That's awesome.
0: Um, so yeah absolutely there were there were black pirates there were uh native american pirates very few of those but um more to do with population issues than anything yeah Um, and yeah they they had very little time for traditional government (laughs) (laughs) but within their own set of rules they were extremely consistent uh at least for the most part Mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting society it's absolutely a a very good example of counterculture yeah. where as distasteful as they seemed to all of the people around them that they were living among, uh, within their own culture, it had very clearly defined rules. It had very clearly defined mores. Yeah. Um, and they managed to build a very functional and successful society within that, co- that counterculture. It's just that it didn't really gain a lot of wider acceptance mm-hmm. um, because of a hangup that these other cultures had with them, specifically the pirating. Yeah, Yeah, the the whole thing that gives them their name. (laughs) So you have these few decades of just absolutely free for all piracy in the Caribbean, mainly executed against the Spanish Mm -hmm. until the Spanish are basically so beaten down in the Caribbean that their their shipments just aren't as rich as they used to be. Mm -hmm. They've just been taken too many times. Pirates keep hitting the actual settlements. Despite the fortifications, these settlements keep being taken over, over and over again, and completely plundered by pirates. They don't have as much to send anymore. They don't have as much production capabilities as they used to have. Mm-hmm. Spain is no longer as wealthy. It's just not working out. This is the time, tr- the, the time frame where you start seeing the actual treasure fleet itself being hit, and sometimes not making it to Spain. Poor Spain. Yeah, I Maybe. guess. <laughs> I mean, they did try and claim half the world, that's pretty that ambitious. The, by saying that the Pope said it was okay, <laughs> and I mean, one of the, I'm, I'm being a little bit hard on Spain. One of the the one of the most important things about sovereignty, and this was decided by the Peace of Westphalia that that peace that ended the Thirty Years' War, is that one of the things you need to be a sovereign nation is the ability to defend your own borders. Yeah, and. As much as the diplomacy of, uh, side of the Peace of Westphalia is very, very important, mm-hmm. and personally I prefer to focus on that stuff, it's still, a, it's still a requirement of a modern nation state that they be able to at least tacitly defend their own borders or control their own borders. Usually with some sort of military force to back it up,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: have to have some sort of legitimate force in play. Yeah, Spain was not able to exercise its sovereignty in the Caribbean. That was being eroded away by all of these other bids for colonies within the Caribbean.
1: Yeah, they're quite vulnerable there.
0: They overextended. Yeah. Is is really what happened there. Um, Their area of of influence shrank massively, first with that concession to the French about staying south of the the tropic, Mm -hmm. uh, and then further as they allowed other nations to take islands within the Caribbean. Once that happens... You may not have lost the thing that gave you legitimacy in the first place, but you've demonstrated that you're completely unable to support it in any way. And that's kind of a death knell for uh, an endeavor as big as trying to hold half the world on the strength of your navy. A few things happen within a very short span of time that's going to bring this golden age to not an end, but there's definitely going to be a, a major gap in things here. In 1688, something happens in England called the Glorious Revolution, which is where uh, William of Orange comes across from the Netherlands and marries, um, Mary Stuart to, uh, to found a new dynasty in, in the English monarchy, Mm -hmm. ending the Stuart dynasty. Um, I mean, the Stuart dynasty already wasn't doing all that well. That's where the whole, like, English revolution comes in. Right. All, you know, Oliver Cromwell, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um. So the Stuarts were already on real shaky ground. William of Orange had a pretty good claim to the throne. Mary had an ex- excellent claim to the throne. The two of them took it. Mm-hmm. Uh, problem is, neither of them were particularly friendly to France, and they weren't afraid to show it. Mm. Um, which essentially uh, ended the partnership between Tortuga and Port Royal, because yeah. as, much as, as much autonomy as those colonies had, they did technically have to answer to their parent. Countries and they started cracking down on who they were willing to give letters of mark to, namely the English no longer wanted to give letters of mark to the French. I get it uh, yeah. it had been it had been an alliance of convenience, it had worked really well for its intended purpose, uh, namely cr- crippling the the spanish yeah, but that purpose was sort of over, and the uneasy friendship that had been built on was also over because of the the glorious revolution so that kind of fractured the the community of pirates in the mm. in, in in the Caribbean region not here not irreparably so but you no longer had this like united front against a single enemy right. uh, at least in the same way then in 1692 so only 4 years later there was a massive earthquake in Port Royal so mm. big that it leveled the city like it is it was it was enormous it was devastating wow Kingston started growing because Port Royal was destroyed. Mm. Um, there, had, there, there were a number of attempts to kind of rebuild the city over the years, but it's, uh, it, it never quite stuck. This was essentially the end of the heyday of Port Royal. And in a lot of ways, England was kind of okay with that. This was the destruction of a place that was being called the Sodom of the New World, and they were a little <laughs> bit embarrassed about it. And it gave them a really good excuse to stop harboring pirates there. Yeah, which again is, is kind of useful because the pirates were in a lot of ways allowed free reign of the Caribbean because of that sort of political end, right? Namely, attacking the Spanish. This kind of brought all of the colonial leaders in the Caribbean to. I'm not going to say exactly equal amounts of influence, but the, the the Spanish monopoly on influence was so badly broken mm-hmm. that uh, colony leaders began respecting European treaties in the Caribbean. So the idea of being beyond the line no longer really held true. Right. And now when England and France were at peace in Europe, England and France were going to be at peace in the Caribbean. Mm. So you have uh, a breakdown of treaties, you have a crackdown on piracy, you have a loss of one of the most important uh, uh havens for piracy in the Caribbean. Yeah. And you have like all of this happening all at once. Meanwhile, there's been a massive boom in the Indian Ocean. The Dutch have been developing things over there. They've got a rocking economy going. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, you know after the destruction of Port Royal in 1692, uh, a lot of the uh, pirates who had been so active in the Caribbean uh, left. They went to the Indian Ocean because there was more money to be made there. Which sounds like we're done with the Caribbean, but it's going to bounce back. <laughs> um, that being said, I feel like this is a really good place to take a break. All right, and next time when we come back, we're going to look at the uh, the resurgence of the Golden Age of piracy as well as look at some of the uh, some of the more well-known pirates and some of their specific stories because that should be a lot of fun. Sounds good. some of the proliferation of piracy in the Caribbean could be attributed to the relative lack of law or the massive opportunities for monetary gain with relatively little risk. However, it's also important to note both the dearth of sailors created by the peace in Europe, as well as the essentially state-sanctioned nature of piracy in the region. Next time on HI101, we'll look at how the major powers in the Caribbean tried to unring all those very enticing bells, as well as focus in on some of the most famous pirates in history. That episode will be up on July 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.